We acknowledge that we live and work on the traditional lands of the Gunai Kurnai Nation and that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. We acknowledge that we benefit from the colonial structures and policies that remain in place today. We stand in solidarity with First Nations people and recognise their ongoing struggles in dismantling those structures. During the First World War, strikes caused fuel shortages so severe that the Victorian government reopened the old brown coal mine near Morwell in the Latrobe Valley. And the state government has outlined a long-term plan to ensure the Latrobe Valley remains viable as its economy moves away from coal-fired energy. It's been the lifeblood of the Latrobe Valley for decades, but continual change in the power industry and the introduction of the carbon tax means it's time for a plan B. It's a month tomorrow since fire entered the Hazelwood coal mine in Victoria's east. Fire has been burning for weeks now, blanketing the township in a toxic smoke. The housing estates are literally just 50 metres away, so when the wind blows in the other direction, they take all of that in. The guillotine has finally come down on Australia's dirtiest power station, Hazelwood. It's caused jitters about electricity prices and raised questions about Australia's readiness for a low carbon future. We're not going to achieve net zero in the cafes, dinner parties and wine bars of our inner cities. The Latrobe Valley's coal mines could be filled with water and made into a tourist attraction to rival Italy's Lake Como. So I think for our listeners, this episode is really important because we've spoken to a bunch of experts who are all really future focused and education focused. So you and I have noticed in all the conversations we've been having over the last two years since we started this project that we get the sense that there's like a lot that has to change very, very quickly. And a lot of the time the plans and stuff are kind of general and they're talking about like, you know, this needs to happen, but it's not like very specific about how. And so at this GNEC, this conference, we were able to speak to experts who are actually looking at how that happens. So I think the important thing of this episode is looking at the very specific stuff that's coming to the region and how it's going to happen and how dramatically quickly it's going to happen. It is. So it's happening so quickly. And that was one of the most daunting things about the whole conference for me. With the renewable energy transition and transformation of this region, we need wind turbines, we need solar panels and solar flares, and we need batteries and we need big batteries, we need community batteries, we need all of these different things operating on all these different levels and some of the skills that are required to make these things we don't we've never had before so we are rapidly having to tra- train a new workforce this is the biggest like industrial revolution dare i say since the industrial revolution <laughs> Fancy. Yeah. you said so, it you heard it here first folks <laughs> Um, so yeah so this is huge and it's it needs everyone to be on board that's why the GNEC started in the first place was to uh, allow a space for everybody to come on board and tell talk about their part to play in the transition I don't know if it was because we got to spend more time there because we were there for the whole four days all to bring you this very episode I don't know the conversation felt more cohesive than it did last year and we got to look at a lot of graphs about a lot of different things that were extremely troubling and hopeful so I kind of at the moment I think that things might be happening as fast as they possibly can and it's still not fast enough to stop the pending climate doom. I think that duality is the theme of this episode, the hope and despair of like, yeah, we need to do all these things and we can, but oh my God, the amount of red tape and complexity and nuance to getting it right 
is very challenging. So I think the people, like all the wonderful experts we spoke to are kind of really going to speak to those sorts of themes. The other thing that we got to do this time was go to the Youth Summit. So do you want to fill us in on what that is just in a little bit and then also talk about how we surveyed the children. Sure. Day one was the Gippy Youth New Energy Job Summit. So we Ugh. went out of our way to get some merchandise for Coalface Podcast. We'll definitely put this on the Instagram. We went to town. We got, what is it called? A core flute? Yeah. Oh, not a core flute. No? We got a, a self-standing pull-up banner. Yep. We got a tablecloth. Hell and yeah. we got fridge magnets because we are the plumbers of podcasting. <laughs> I've been sitting on that and line And that we're wading through shit all the time. No, and that, like, oh. what you put on the fridge, like, you get free fridge magnets from plumbers and electricians and stuff. But we were like, what do kids want? Kids want fridge magnets. magnets. What I did want to say was just to fill in, like, the experience. It was in a big kind of hall. And it was like, I don't think I actually got to do a, a, a job summit as a kid. But it's exactly what I imagined. Like, it's like a whole bunch of renewable energy uh, companies who have little booths that are like there to speak to the kids as they come in and like busloads to be like, can I do this? It was a it was a cool experience to get to actually see. I guess it, they they were more hopeful than I had anticipated, but I guess it was self-selecting in that they had attended a youth summit for this type of thing. But also a lot of them were like, it's half a day off. I'm like, yeah, true. Yeah. Look, <laughs> kids so are still kids. I never, ever went to a uh, a jobs anything when I was in no, high school. No, the vibe school. was like, there are I no jobs. I was too busy not being at school. Um, and the vibe was no jobs. There's no too. jobs. So um, it was really fun to be there. But what I wanted to say about our actual booth is I realised like the day before and um, sent you a message saying it's going to be really funny because we're going to be the only stall that actually has like power, um, the cooling towers and coal yes. and we're called Coalface and ev- all of the other stands and jobs are going to be about are renewable we energy. Are we the fossil fuels? Well, we are pointing at the pothole. <laughs> <laughs> but look, seriously, we live right next to a giant fucking one I mean, that hasn't dusty. been fixed yet. So yeah. like I'm going to keep pointing at our unrehabilitated minds until something's done about that. So the opportunity to go to the youth day, and we'll talk about that a little more in a second, and to actually speak to young people, we were like, holy shit, this is like our time to shine. And so what did we do? We got a fucking survey together because we are basically data scientists. I took one subject. Josie, Josie, it was a voluntary questionnaire. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, for legal reasons, it was a voluntary Voluntary questionnaire. questionnaire. Absolutely, you're right, my bad. You and I both have very strong feelings around our time growing up here in the 90s. We wanted to know what had changed. And so if you stick around to the end of this episode, we're going to do a big reveal about all of the data points that come through. Also, stay tuned because we spoke to a, a kid. We did. We spoke to a youth. youth. And so we are going to get one youth perspective because it's tough getting kids to interview. You have to get their parents' permission and stuff too. So I'm scared of talking to their moms. (laughs) They don't like me. They're like our age, Josie. (laughs) Terrifying. That's even worse. Okay. So since we went twice, I wanted to ask you what you felt like the biggest difference was this year. Sure. So I guess this year, uh, the Coalface podcast was like wholeheartedly embraced. We were invited into their working group meetings and things like that. We sat in on the comms meetings and we got to see behind the scenes. So that was huge. But also um, a lot of the critiques that were made and observations that were made from last year's conference from from us and from a range of other people were taken into consideration. So they were really, really thinking about the conference from a sustainability viewpoint. Even though this year I still didn't get my printed name on a media tag, <laughs> um, we actually got media tags that, or, or that we got name tags that you could plant in the garden and they grow lettuce. So they were yeah. thinking about that. 
even the bags that the conference, like the merch drop. So I think last time we maybe even made the critique where it's like we did get a lot of plastic and um, sort of disposable things. This year they came in like, who, who makes the bags? They're called boomerang, boomerang bags. bags. So yeah. they're all made from the reclaimed and recycled fabrics. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the organisers about like those changes that they made throughout the events and also you you get a lot of lanyards when you go to conferences apparently yes. um so you could return your lanyard and things like that they were trying to encourage people to carpool and i don't know it just you could definitely tell that this was the second conference yes. and that, uh, that, that you could tell that a lot of work had been done on the program on how to run it they were trying to show people how incredible the Gippsland region is and show the food and fibre um, side. I, I just want to double down on that as well. Like, I think that there are always changes that things can be improved, but just seeing the amount of change that they made over a year and also seeing all of the, like, they have to serve a lot of different uh, in- interests right. and they're managing that. I mean, we've got a critique later on about the carbon capture stuff that we'll mention later in this episode, but I think, you know, given the complexity of the, the situation, how many different people they need to appease, it's it's pretty incredible the changes that they made. So while I think it's impossible to have a perfect experience in that sense, like the the you could see the work and really putting their money, what's the word, like walking the walk or whatever? Walking like, the walk. I can yeah. see. With definite. the seeds and the stuff, I'm like, oh, my God, I wouldn't have even thought of that. So, yeah, right. it's a lot of um, a lot of feedback and it makes me really curious to see, like, how what is this going to be like the following year? And I'm super excited about that because yeah. I think it can only get better from here. Yeah. So, well done, DNAC team. Who are we talking to first? Because I know we spoke to a lot of people and I'm dying to know what order you've done this in. We did. So, uh, because our podcast is usually focused on the Latrobe Valley, first up, we are going to speak to Bodie Darville of the Latrobe Valley Authority. Now, our eager-eared listeners may remember that last year we actually spoke to Ashley Hall from the LVA. But back when we spoke to Ashley, we were in the drafting stages of the Latrobe Valley's transition plan from the Latrobe Valley Authority. Remind me what that report is again, because there's so many reports. The Latrobe Valley Authority's uh, transition plan was all about how Latrobe Valley and Gippsland is going to move through the the renewable energy transition. It's in the name. It's in the title. It's in the title. (laughs) And where we're going to be or where the aim is as a Gippsland region and Latrobe Valley, where we're going to be in 2035. Mm -hmm. So to do this, um, the Latrobe Valley Authority, they spoke to different community groups. They spoke to industry. They spoke to schools and everyone like that to get a sense of what people wanted of Gippsland and Latrobe Valley in 2035. Now, initially, when the Latrobe Valley Authority began, they were just looking at the Latrobe Valley in the last couple of years being tasked to look at the whole Gippsland region, which is huge. Bodhi Darville is a part of that team and she is the Director of Emerging Industries. They do this report, right? Yeah. And that's and so we get to speak to her about that, which is great. But I also know that that interview was super fascinating because she spoke about a whole area of life down here that I really knew nothing about. Correct. So Bodhi Darville is also very involved in roller derby and was once the president of the Gippsland Rangers roller derby team. So I thought that was really that freaking very cool. badass. Very badass. And um, I've been to the Gippsland Pride Cup, which is actually a derby event that happens once a year, I believe, in June. And one of the things that attracted Bodhi to the sport of derby, because she isn't a particularly sporty person, but she was saying that it was about the inclusivity of derby. For those who don't know, derby has a lot of LGBTQIA plus community members. There is a lot of people with disability and neurodiversity or anyone can participate and join. 
unless you can't skate, obviously, and, and then then you know hard. that is a you can b- cheer from the sides. You can cheer that's, from the that's sides. That's what I'll so do. I go and cheer from the sides. I just wanted to say to what struck me from our conversation is that everyone wants a more inclusive Gippsland. Whole future should be Derby. <laughs> No, if I felt like lessons from Derby should be applied oh, okay. to other things was more. I'm not <laughs> right, the, right, right, right. Yes, yeah, so you know what the future is? They're going to turn the hole into like a giant Derby ring, and it's going to just be like the world's largest Derby hole. Look, Derby hole. I'm I don't know. It. I think you need a that's lot. That's my of- <laughs> plan. When I'm elected to president of the hole, that's what I'm doing. My only thought, <laughs> Josie, is that you need a lot of people who are in Derby all of the time to okay, balance that's the what aquifer. I'll do. I will make it a balance requirement. The I will make it a re- yes, but to see the centrifuge thing, if they're all going a certain speed, it'll even out the pressure of the walls. It's true, genius. True. They have to keep skating though, Steph. We're going to need a consistent stream of gay people. To, to, to keep, keep skating. skating. Yeah. <laughs> just and, keep on skating. <laughs> keep on and that's skating. how you have a safe, stable and sustainable mind. Maybe we should ask Heartthrob Anderson to do a gay science about... We need to, because <laughs> I'm clearly not a doctor with gay and I don't people. know. Yeah, true. All right. So now that we have rolled on that, let's roll to a clip from Bodie. I think it's really funny growing up in a small rural community because I don't think you value what you have while you're there. So for me growing up in um, South Gippsland and in Wellington, it was very much, it was great. It was a great, I lived on a small farm with my family, you know, had a really great friendship group really good experiences at school that sort of thing but then when I wanted to do university I had to go to Melbourne because the things that I wanted to study communications that sort of thing it just wasn't available locally through Monash at the time so I had to go to Melbourne and move away a lot of my family a lot of my friends stayed here and when I did come back I did the Gippsland Community Leadership Program and I think that really helped me to understand Gippsland as a region and to understand just the breadth of it, the beauty of it, all the, the incredible organisations and people that we have, the really great opportunities that we have here, and this idea that it's not just individual towns or individual local government areas, it's this thing called Gippsland, which is a cohesive region and is something that's really quite special. I'm glad I grew up here, but I think I value it much more now than I did when I was younger. When I came back from Melbourne, I was working in publishing, I did a bit of a 360 into community development and I started working at neighbourhood houses. So I worked in uh, Rosedale and really supporting our local community groups, so our men's shed and our community garden and whatnot to start up. Then when I took some time off to have kids and came back to the workforce, I went and worked at Wellington Shire, which was a similar sort of role, but across the entirety of the Shire. So it was supporting community organisations and volunteers who were managing assets, rec reserves, and halls and and different things like that so it was that community development supporting people to support their own places but on a broader scale and it was really community-led place-based work one of the things that I really love about where I work now which is the Latrobe Valley Authority is that again there's that regional lens so it's almost that step up again from just Wellington to the entirety of the the Gippsland region and it's really looking at that place-based approach so Who are we in Gippsland? Who are our people? What are our strengths? What are our assets? How are we working together, not being told by others what we should be doing, but how are we working together to say what we want our future to look like? So it's been a little bit of an evolution, I guess, but I'm very much have always been um, quite passionate about working with people and working with community and making sure that um, we're building people up, their capacity, their strengths, their voice, and making sure that they're involved. I think we've got more to do in the energy space there, absolutely. 
but I think that a lot of people recognise how important it is and there's a lot of different projects and activities going on to try and support that. Now that we've learnt a little more about Bodhi, let's see what is specifically in the transition plan in regards to young people and future generations in Latrobe Valley and Gippsland. Throughout the transition plan, there are guiding principles that probably apply to everybody across the community, including absolutely young people, because what it's really trying to do is say that we need to put people first and foremost, like this transition isn't happening, it is happening to our industry, but it's not just happening to our industry or our infrastructure or our economy, it's happening to our people and it has a direct influence and impact on what is it like for me to live my life from day to day and what are the challenges and what are the positives of that. Um, and it's got a real lens on nobody being left behind. So real equity and inclusion. What does it look like for every single person in Gippsland to experience this transition in a positive way? And how do we particularly lean down and reach down to people who that might be more challenging for? So what it looks at for young people in particular um, is that it talks about increased access to relevant study and training opportunities. And obviously not all young people necessarily want to go into study and training opportunities, but that is often something that we're supporting younger people in particular to explore new avenues and develop skills for new careers. It also specifically talks about in the outcomes, there is an outcome that is about young people aspiring to study and work in the region and about having high quality and valued jobs and career pathways in industries and having that long-term future. And I think in the context of the Latrobe Valley in particular, where you've got the power stations who historically for many have been seen as that long-term career, my parent, my grandparent, my whoever was, and I'm also going to follow that footstep. I think understanding what is that next long-term career, what what is work, how can we show young people what the long-term future might look like, that it is worth staying in the region, that there will be really interesting and valuable and, I guess, values-based um, job opportunities for them in the future? Because increasingly we're seeing that it's, it's young people who are saying, hey, what about the future of the planet? What about the future of the environment? What about the future of the life that me and my children are going to enter based on what everybody else um, has left it at? There's also information in here around the outcomes around sufficient housing. And we know that for young people, quite often moving into housing, finding housing, rentals, housing insecurity is a huge issue. So there's a particular focus in that equity lens on young people as well. Making sure we've got inclusive and safe environments, accessible health services, connectivity. Like there will be cross-cutting lenses on all of those elements into what does that look like for different parts of the community and different demographics. Um, and young people is very much a part of that. Like one of the most striking things about what Brody was saying about the transition plan is like how it's got the people first focus. She was also saying that it recognises a lot of the challenges and difficulties of people that we that we talk about heaps. Well, we've been doing a lot of uh, interviewing, right? So we've had a lot of face-to-face -face contact on the streets. A lot of face-to-face -face contact on the streets. And we've spoken to a lot of people who feel really disenfranchised. There isn't, There doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for those people. And they also feel like that they've been left out of the conversation in a meaningful way. We wanted to understand what was in this transition plan that reaches people that feel disenfranchised. And, and how, how they reached them. I think that's what I'm really interested. Like, you know, it's difficult enough for those people to make space for any of this, let alone actually engage in that level. I think we were also curious about like what's in the report that actually addresses them and what right. the future is going to look like for them as well. So this is what Bodhi had to say. 
really worth recognising. When we, when we consult, when we engage, we're only ever hearing a certain amount of voices for all sorts of reasons. And including in this transition plan engagement, there was a really concerted effort to get out to voices that haven't been heard or that aren't the typical ones that we, that we normally hear from. And I think that was, that was certainly done well, but there will absolutely be voices that don't feel that they're represented in this plan or for all sorts of reasons, aren't interested in engaging with this sort of concept at all. And I think what's really valuable is that because it's such an amalgamation of all of the different agencies and supports and networks and resources and levels of government and community groups across Gippsland, there will be lots of ways, this plan may not touch a disengaged person directly, but quite often the services and organisations who've been involved in saying our shared vision is this, the resourcing we need to get there is this, they're the ones who are probably quite often working with that person, whether that's with skills support, whether it's with housing support, whether it's with all sorts of different things. So I think while there may not be direct engagement and direct connection to see how this impacts my life, in trying to bring together that collaborative leadership, we do end up filtering down to the direct valuable impact for the person who might be quite disconnected right now. And getting everybody working together in that space instead of operating in silos and isolation and leaving major gaps or duplicating, I really do think it will have a better long-term outcome for all sorts of people across Gippsland than they may be having at the moment. The Latrobe Valley Authority has tried to consult as broadly as possible in Latrobe Valley and across the Gippsland region to get a sense of what is needed from the community perspective. According to the transition plan, these engagements included face-to-face meetings, interviews, surveys, and focus groups with individuals and community groups, peak organisations, employees, industry groups, unions, traditional owners professional bodies, education and training providers and local government. So their stories and knowledge and expertise have resulted in this vision and the priorities and the guiding principles set out in the plan. All right, I'm going to put my, like, goggles on. This is my, like, mm-hmm. my vision goggles. What am I seeing? Is it a roller derby ring that is huge? It could be. <laughs> like, so we're going to have a link to the Latrobe Valley and Gippsland's transition plan, Gippsland 2035, in the show notes. And we really strongly encourage everyone who's local and not local to have a look in there and tell us what you think because we do not get to hear enough from our listeners. You hear what we think all the time. And I'd really like to know if your community group was consulted for this plan. Do you feel represented? Are you excited? What do you love? What do you hate? So get at us and tell us what you think. What this also brings up for me is something that we've sort of been mulling about for a little bit now. I don't know if discrepancy is the word, but like the definition or like the geographical region being Gippsland being so huge there feels like there's sort of a push to make it like Gippsland centric rather than the Latrobe Valley when the Latrobe Valley faces such specific things I feel like we need to find a way to do both where we can be like both specifically Latrobe Valley and also have like take into consideration the rider region but they're all kind of like I, I just don't want to feel erased as, like, this place. We have the big holes. Right. We've got the fucking coal dust. We've got the goddamn health impacts. And I'm not saying that other people places don't have, you know, right. problems. Obviously, everywhere does. But it does feel like this drive to er- erase those boundaries is kind of not necessarily a good thing. So I think um, I think that what was really apparent to me from being at the Gippsland New Energy Conference this year was I heard from more people from across Gippsland who are feeling that same thing. Like, they're right. feeling the focus is too much on the Latrobe Valley. But I feel that we have these giant gaping holes that directly <laughs> yeah. affect all of our infrastructure. And as you were saying, 
all of the health inequalities and the worst domestic violence call out in the oh whole God, of yeah, the yeah. 79 groupings of Gippsland. When you hear about the Latrobe Valley, you don't think about good things. But when you think about the rest of Gippsland, it's beautiful and it's peaceful. And I'm not saying that there are bad, like there are not bad things and sure, being yeah. at the end of the line power um, places like Malakuta and Venus Bay and all of those other little towns is a real challenge and people are losing their food. But to me, Gippsland sounds nice and lovely, but the Latrobe Valley is still a fucking Do you know hole. what it's very like, you speak about men or whatever and someone will be like, well, not all men. It's very like derailly. The Latrobe Valley is finally having some chance at maybe justice, I don't know, or like some hope after being like utterly devastated. And while the focus a little bit needs to be on this area, the and but group of people. And again, I get it. I bet wherever you live, there's going to be stuff and you need to have the focus. And I think that comes down to maybe like a state level of like, maybe we just need more funding in general and care about these things. But it does feel like, I don't know that the solution is like blurring those boundaries further. It feels like we need to like, can't we do both? Why can't we like hyper-focus on the areas that need it and also do like the broader branding of like, oh, it's just Gibbsland, whatever. I don't know. They, 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 they just, I, I am a little concerned about that move because it feels like we are, we are still living in the immediate actual impact, not just like post it, not 10 years. It, it, it's, it's happening now and erasing it doesn't feel like we're not ready for that. No, it, feels it doesn't way feel too good. soon. I don't know. I think I'm just like, I understand that that might sound divisive and I'm super open to like expanding what I'm thinking here. But I guess it's like a very reactionary thing to the idea of minimizing it at the point where it's like, we haven't even had this focus for like two years, you right. know? Like, it's, the holes it's, aren't fixed. No, and the holes yeah. are super holy still. So yeah, that's yeah. just on that. So, but I think the the person that we're speaking to next, it gave me a lot of hope. So do you want to tell us about our very good friend, Bernadette? I sure do. So I, first time I was going to gush a little bit. Like oh, I had I the best time yes. talking to Bernadette. So no, really she's amazing. so smart. Yeah. So uh, she wears very many, very many hats. So we interviewed Bernadette in her capacity as the chair of the Australian Renewables Academy or the ARA to find out what kind of training is going to be required for this renewable energy transition to actually take place. So uh, we have a lot of new industry coming to Gippsland and there are some roles that can be filled in by jobs that already exist. Like lots of trades are going to be required to build housing for people and everything like that to get the renewable transition happening. But there are some roles that we haven't even prepared for or even ever had training like for. Like space jobs that we don't even know about. Right. So according to the ARA's website, the Australian Renewables Academy is a network of regional businesses and stakeholders united by a shared vision for a sustainable future. I just want to break that down to all of our listeners. So their goals are to empower job seekers with the tools and connections they need to thrive in the renewable energy sector. So to do this, the Australian Renewables Academy identify and promote what jobs in the renewable sector. They develop and administer training programs and they offer guidance to job hunters on how to showcase their skills to the renewable energy market. Say I want a job in renewables. What would they actually do? Like, do I walk into their building and be like, one job, please? No, you do not walk into their specific building, though they do offer specific training to get people involved in the renewable energy industry. But they work with businesses and stakeholders to identify what jobs... Are needed and how many jobs and all those sorts of things, as well as making training programs and sending them out 
to places. So I feel like when you are just some guy on the street, you don't know about all this invisible structural stuff going on. So you're saying that they like fill the gap between the job networky type things and making sure that there are roles available in the future. Like they're trying to tell people like, hey, we're going to need 700 windmill dudes. Correct. Is that- <laughs> so that is the finding and identifying okay. right. um, and those sorts of things. So they, they have the three main um, areas of expertise. So they make and administer the training programs. They identify the roles and the jobs and they connect the job seekers to the jobs. Oh, my God. You should be like their spokesperson. That was good. Did you remember that? Jesus. I, I was uh, in the room and I do not remember that. Yeah. But great. Um, so given all that we've been talking about, we can see that the changes to the region are happening very quickly and they're massive. So we've asked Bernadette about the role of the Australian Renewables Academy in connecting up the different training groups and why that's so important. The underlying premise of establishing the Australian Renewables Academy has been, is about workforce, but it's also around collaboration, driving innovation. The, the directors all agreed from establishment stage that we don't individually have the resources to address all of the needs. If we join up, we can get a bit of value out of the um, out of the resources that we've got. And there are advantages. There are advantages to being government providers. So so we have our TAFEs and and we have our then our really our strong institutions, the universities. But there are also advantages to scaling across the non-government sector as well. And that's where we sit. In any industry, in order to optimise your benefits to to your business, but also to your to key targets, you need to join up and partner. If we talk at four levels, mm-hmm. at that at that professional, really highly skilled niche skills, that planning and thinking about the numbers and the location and how people who have those skills are going to interact across a number of the different developments, that has to be happening now because that's six years worth of study. So we need to have enough of the people coming through, bearing in mind that we're going to be in competition. We're in competition globally for these skills. So we've got we've got. And some we can just draw on, you know, overseas. We can draw on anywhere in Australia for any project in Australia. To me, at the next level, then, there's the, the, the skilled trades level. And we're, and we're going, you know, everyone is talking electricians. But there will be other skilled trades as well. We're, again, we're looking at what's the apprenticeship system look like and is that going to actually be fit for purpose going forward? And then we've got the semi-skilled people and how we actually can lift the semi-skilled into higher skilled um, and create, you know, we may need even different supervision structures because we may not even have the time to get the numbers that we need. And can we create then a pathway through, a, a, a pipeline through so that people can come in at the those critical roles that don't require the qualifications, but they're absolutely critical to keep a project on the ground. I feel like that was the clearest that we've ever had the different sectors explained. Like there's so many different areas, but like she's just like bang, bang, bang. Anyway, I think that's like really helpful. Obviously at the conference, you and I were sitting in like that big auditorium and we saw multiple, multiple terrifying graphs about the speed. There was that one guy who was talking about like, okay, this is what we've done in the last 20 years in the renewable sector internationally and here's what we have to do in the next three and it was like... And I, I am cried. gesturing up wildly. Yeah, like, you, yeah, you I cried like you three times yeah. um, in that. Yeah, it's um, super upsetting. So given that we had kind of seen a bunch of that in the last few days and then we had Bernadette in the room with us, like we obviously had to ask, like, Bernadette, 
How is this possible? I think there are going to be, have to be a number of strategies. So we want local jobs for local people, but I think there will also have to be a reality around have we got the numbers. Um, given that if we, we've been talking to the Upper Spencer Gulf people and the towns, people from towns, from towns and the people from the WA and the Territory in New South Wales. So every one of us are having the same conversation about volume of workers. It, I mean, ideally in Australia as well, and this will be, would be extremely difficult to engineer, we would have different projects taking off at different times. So the 50% of the construction workforce that moves around moves from one to the other seamlessly. And then you could grow 50% locally. That's the mining industry experience. Was it, there's a 50 percent moved, 50% stayed. But it's a costly exercise of churning through when you're running a business. Costs tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars to recruit a person. So Bernadette spoke a bunch about her experience in other transition and mining communities. And um, because of her background, we wanted to know um, her perspective on how identity is linked to your working life and what impact that has on community. People have stayed in the industry and stayed in their workforce for a long period of time. It becomes part of our identity in our, in our world that we live in. Work is very much part of our identity. And so for people to lose the identity that they've invested their lifetime in and to see what was valued become then non-valued, I, I think is extremely difficult. It's like the... Um, it's the same for the guys in the, in the forestry. Forestry transition started in the mid-80s and it's now taken, we, even then people were saying it would take 40 years to get that transition. Well, it, it's taken 40 years. That doesn't mean that the impact on the people who are still in it intergenerationally in those industries isn't, is, isn't significant. And then I think the other piece becomes we need that level of experience staying and transitioning across. So whilst on one level people may think they're not valued, on the other level we're letting go of really experienced people who need to shift, will need to shift and change to adapt to a new industry. But if we've got a whole lot of people who aren't experienced coming through, who do they lean on to gain that experience? And it's these around just the just the things to do with how you work within large sites and how you undertake big projects they're needed so uh, it's complex I think and the valley's been through you know like I, I think about the SEC like a lot of us you guys are you, well you would have heard enough about it at least from your age let alone yeah, you grew up with it yeah. yeah so I was fascinated given Bernadette's perspective and unique sort of breadth of kind of moving to the area and having that sort of 80s view of things and you and I speak about this a lot where we like we sure did grow up with the consequence of privatization the old privatization <laughs> chestnut the old don't even open that chestnut well we absolutely opened that chestnut with Bernadette so we asked her <laughs> what are the unique uh, challenges that the area has faced since privatisation came through in the 90s? So I think that, you know, and you think about the various impacts that have happened in the Latrobe Valley and the communities of the Latrobe Valley, it's really about we, we can surely understand and learn from that um, and we can surely understand and learn from how we need to actually be really clear about how we move people who are not in the workforce now open up jobs for them, whether it's directly in the new developments or indirectly in the tier two, tier three service industries um, and be giving, you know, enabling them to have those, that not, not in intergenerational poverty. And, and we do have 
a poor workforce participation rate and that is in part because of these structural adjustments to industries that haven't been well planned. So I, I love, I absolutely, is that not the clearest? Like, it's just, I, I know we keep banging on about it, but it's like when someone explains you that information in a way that's like, the adults are in charge and it makes me so calm. Yeah, and <laughs> look, the having the Australian Renewables Academy and like having met Bernadette, we have all of these really, really, really smart people in the room working on these problems, which is really reassuring in a lot of ways, but still the scalability of how quickly everything has to happen. We've got to educate workers. So at the moment, the recent estimate is sitting at 59,000 workers being required for the renewable energy That's transition. Like more than the population of like Morewell now, right? It's, it's like huge. double. And we need like the 12,000 workers to be trained immediately pretty much. To it sounds like they need housing. to be trained yesterday. They do. They absolutely do. Ooh. So the, those <laughs> graphs were really bothersome. And Let's seeing... describe the graphs. I feel like we haven't fully okay. gone into it. So we went to the talk by the... Uh, it's an interim CEO for the SEC, Chris Miller or Milne, I want to say, but let's say Chris, our boy yeah. Chris. Give me a job, please. And the the primary graph he was looking at was sort of the 59,000 workers that would need just for the this transition. But that doesn't take into consideration, I don't think, like all the other workers' support and the, the infrastructure that would need to. Like the, these are not big towns that we're talking about expanding, right? And given that we live here, we don't want to have the fly-in, fly-out situation necessarily because that's a kind of transitional workforce. Also, those people are already busy in Western Australia getting a billion dollars for working in a mine. So how are we going... Like, where are these people coming from? Where is the housing coming from that doesn't just end up being, like, slums? Where is any housing coming from? (laughs) True, true that. We We don't have currently enough. There are currently not enough houses for people and there certainly are not enough houses for the workers that we need. Okay, what I keep thinking, the ridiculous um, discrepancy or impossibility between the two uh, requirements here, right? To scale up that quickly and this possibility of having a brighter and better future, right? Those things are not like necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're certainly challenging and to make things good and better, we need time. To do it as fast as we need in order to get to where we need to be, we do not have time. We don't have time. And I think that's where I'm like, oh, I can see where this is going. I think we were like, oh, here's an opportunity for a bit of a power vacuum. There's a real revolution. Like you called it an industrial revolution. Maybe this will be a better future. Like we're thinking about the cooperative conversation we had about creating a... Um, a community and a lifestyle that is like f- passable, workable for people in the future, right? Flexible time, um, you know, not working you to the bone, all that kind of stuff, and right? And that's not, that doesn't seem possible. It, so, it seems huge, uh, hugely impossible. And yeah. At the same time, climate change is getting dramatically worse. That, so I think like, I know that's a really big statement to make in the middle of a podcast. It's already very long, but I think I just like, to me, all of this sort of speaks to like, I feel, again, the duality of, like, extreme hope because there's people like this working on it, but at the same time, this seems so Despair. insurmountable. It's, it's huge. Like, <laughs> and to not just end up in the same place but with renewables. Exactly. I think that's a good natural segue to the next person we spoke to who is Scott from Green Labs Futures. Now, the reason that is a natural segue is because not only does Scott do amazing work as an educator, but he also talks about our favourite thing, which is different forms of economies. So Scott is really interested in circular economies. Now, on this podcast before, we learned about donut economy, which, if you remember, is like just a different structural looking at trying to be less wasteful and things like that. So um, we're going to hear from Scott. And so we wanted to find out from him what his connection to the land was like. I grew up on uh, Gunakonai Brackalong clan land in Hazelwood North. I now reside in Warrigal, which is um, Brackalong clan land as well. The connection for me to Gippsland is is really strong in in my family. So my mum's family 
is the generation coal-fired power industry workers that have have been in the sector you know since as long as I've known. I've always observed the the energy industry, but have never worked in the in the sector. I think the you know the the connection for us in, in Gippsland is it's become a, a lot deeper. It's not just professional work. It's the people that I live in and and grew up living next to and with, and like we have a really interesting opportunity ahead of us to to be a part of uh, not just a regional transformation but to reimagine what our community could look like in the next 20 to 30 years and that's really important for me. So in case we've lost you on that whole circular economy thing let's get super clear this is how Scott defines a circular economy. The circular economy is a, a way that we explore how to commodify waste. So it's an economic uh, term or phrase and, and the idea is to move away from a linear product life cycle towards a circular life cycle. So what we do right now is we design products um, like everything that's sitting here in front of us and it has a, a cradle to, the, to grave type design format. So primarily what we're focusing on is, is cradle to cradle, which means that a product can be designed, it can then be repurposed or recycled and then be ready for its next its next life cycle. And and you know with some of the, the products that we have sitting in front of us, um, like the iPhone is a is a classic product that hasn't been designed with circularity in mind. You know one of the wealthiest companies in the world refuses to do that because they want to protect the IP that's inside the phone and they don't want that being available to the open market. Why couldn't we have phones that are modular, which means that we only need to replace what the user can replace in a, in a life where we can afford to replace little components of our phones, not have to manufacture brand new ones with rare mineral resources um, and sell them for you know, two to $3,000 when essentially all we need is a memory upgrade or a, an updated um, CPU chip that allows the device to operate quicker. Um, we are very big fans of this concept. Anything that can kind of draw us out of this hellhole that is late-stage capitalism, of course. So Scott's work with Green Lab Futures is focused on helping people understand the possibility. So I wanted to know, how does he get into that line of work? Like, how do you even end up being like, oh, I'm a circular economy man? Like, what? So this is what he had to say. I, I ran uh, a social enterprise between 2015 and 2019 had a lot of learnings because we were trying to recycle coffee grounds, um, timber pallets from trade businesses, food waste. The learnings were that in order for me to set up a new business um, and to be able to support that adoption of the circular economy, we needed to be able to use those learnings to talk to businesses across Gippsland uh, uh, and uh, around what the opportunities were for a circular economy to be adopted in Gippsland. The work the Green Labs uh, Green Lab Futures does now is to really explore those questions that aren't being asked, to ask them and to, where, where necessary, kind of lean into the uncomfortable conversations that are a bit more taboo around, you know, why don't we talk about waste as a commodity in Gippsland? Like we only tend to talk about energy as being a commodity, but there's lots of waste opportunities that we could be using to build new employment opportunities that we aren't um, aren't doing and aren't talking about. So for, for our work, we're, we're researching and we've set up a partnership with Federation University to research case studies across the Gippsland community to, to try and normalise the circular economy adoption 
and with the hope to highlight some of these opportunities for the region so that that then becomes a piece of work that people can look at and say, oh, right, here's an opportunity. Maybe I have a skill set in this area. Maybe I should be looking at how I can design a, a new business in that space to help fill that void. As you've probably gathered by now that we here on the podcast, both individually and collectively, love to know how to argue with people. So we asked Scott about the kind of opposition that he faces to the idea of a circular economy. The main um, pushback that we have is that the, I think the conservative viewpoint tends to rise up and say that we don't need change. We can just keep doing what we're doing and that's not good enough. I've, I've got young kids and uh, my wife's due like in the next couple of um, weeks and I'd, I'd like to think that the work that I do can help shape a future, a better future for them and, and obviously uh, you know, other kids that are out there that, that means that they don't have to take on the responsibilities of just ignoring what generations before them could have been doing. For an energy transformation in my eyes to take place in Gippsland, I'm a big believer in that we need to understand how we can design out the waste that will otherwise be stockpiled somewhere and I believe in multiple sites across Gippsland that we want to avoid from day one and start to have that conversation. Conversation one was had today in a room full of 80 people um, and it was received really well, really, really positively I think. And I think we need many more of them. We can't just have one conversation and then say, all right, that's done. Let's move on. Let's tick that box. I think we need to continue the conversation and then ensure that all of our new stakeholders that come to the region understand what Gippsland's about and the principles that we want other businesses to be socially responsible in line with so that they can be operating on our terms, uh, not on their own. So this leads us to wonder, is the structure of capitalism at odds with the requirement to move to a circular economy? And this is what Scott had to say. That is, the, that's a good question. Um, and one that I really, I, I grapple with because as a conscious consumer, um, like the someone- The operative being consumer though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the, the challenge of, of refusing to buy new unless I, I, like, unless I need to, for me, it's, it's not a challenge, but I see it as a challenge in the everyday world for, for everyone around us. I often in classroom talk about, you know, the role of socialism and communism in other countries around the world where, you know, the, the, their economies are designed in a way that consuming isn't seen as the most important aspect to their economy. Um, like they're not measured by GDP, they, they might be measured by happiness, for instance. And so if, if we start to shift that capitalist narrative, that means that as we start to consume a new wave of products, the hope is that those products are better designed so that we're not just buying $5 t-shirts that can be worn once and then thrown into landfill. It is, it's, a, it's a challenging concept for, for people because coming through COVID and, and, and COVID lockdowns here in Victoria, people have kind of been conditioned to you know to want something to buy something and and that's been really accessible in the last couple of years so we're we're really looking at a behavior shift which will i think impact a generation or two to become more conscious about what they consume and to cut down the consumption where they can. So given that Scott's work is largely centred around human-centred design, that made me wonder, with someone with that sort of perspective and lens, what does he think that the future looked like? So we asked him for his, like, sort of big vision, and this is what he said. I think it's really obvious that the conversations 
in the energy transition transformation aren't focused on those people and it's focused on how a transformation can happen in order to then as a byproduct create additional jobs which then means that that will impact the people and the communities i think you know from my perspective there's been a number of research projects be be undertaken to look at systemic change in the valley without looking at or talking to people and getting their thoughts on how how they believe or what they believe a, a version of Gippsland could look like in the future. For me, it's a bit tricky because I, I work with a lot of these companies and, and I've, I've now actively been calling them out, suggesting and, and stating that I think that's just lip service or greenwashing. And I think we've got to stop now because if we keep doing this and we keep saying that people are included in the conversation when they're very clearly not, that we're going to get down the, down the creek and paddle is going to be well and truly lost. Life needs to be designed by lots of people, not just the people that are in the room. And I think for me, the, the opportunity is that if we engage everyone in the community, and it's not just tokenistic, it's deep connection in order to fully understand what people want, not, not just what we think they want, but what they want, I, I, I do think we'll have a different future for the next generation coming forward. And it won't be just jobs, it'll be a different community that isn't just centred on kind of the traditional values of, of what you know, patriarchal society is, has been a part of for the last hundred years, but it'll become centred on people being unique people. We actually fit into many different categories and to be able to acknowledge people, that uh, to be able to acknowledge and, and apply that conversation um, in, in deep connection, I feel, can allow the youth that are sitting, um, sitting out there now wondering what our region will look like to have some hope that you know, there are people out there actively in there batting for them, wanting to, to know that, you know, that we're, not, we're not doing this for ourselves, or I'm not doing it for myself, I'm doing it for the generations to come because I, I, I don't want them to grow up saying, you know, gosh, you guys did nothing. <laughs> I, I also don't want us to, to, to be the generation where we tried to do too much and we burnt ourselves out, but I'd, I'd like to see that we can actively be a part of a, a much bigger change. What he's suggesting is the importance of actually considering how we remove, destroy, recycle that thing that we build in the design phase so that it's like from the ground up designed with its end in mind. And I guess like having not heard that before, I kind of just assumed we did. And hearing that we do not, and I guess that's why we've ended up with giant holes, right. they did not think about it. They were just like, you know what, we need power right now. And yeah. I get it because I get hungry and I really need to deal with like my problems right now. And so I don't think about how I'm going to feel sick and I'm going to be poor after I eat that giant meal. Or but that clothes. <laughs> yeah, you have to do it. You're just like, yeah. oh, I'm so like to do the the thinking of like, how do we resolve this before we even build the damn thing? Right. So smart but I cannot believe we don't already do that I think also his sentiment around like the thinking about the future and stuff is extremely like touching and I think we need more people like Scott doing Scott work right. about the place and that's yeah. what I call it now Scott work Scott work so the next person that we're going to speak with is the incredible Kate Foster. So she's the regional stakeholder manager for Corio Generation, which is an Australian-owned offshore wind developer. So Kate also happens, and this is what we learned over the interview, to be one of the key reasons that the GNEC came about in the first place. So I found out that when she was working for the Wellington Shire as the manager of economic development, so a very fancy title, um, she realised that there was an amazing opportunity to host a conference and showcase all the different types of renewable energy. So she put together the initial plan. So I think she kind of saw the fact that there was all these huge projects and sort of economies and stuff coming to the or um, industries coming to the region and realize that they weren't all talking and so 
um, Kate's sort of the person who put together that initial concept. We actually got to speak with Kate just after the Cryo Generations presentation at the GNEC, and then we also found out that she happens to be a local. Uh, so I'm actually a Gippsland local. Uh, I grew up in Sale, but left at about the age of 15 to finish off my schooling. I spent 22 years away and I only moved back to Sale four years ago. And it's funny because growing up, you know, I couldn't wait to get to Melbourne and the bigger the city, the better. I spent some time in London, Dubai and mainly in Melbourne. The reason I never thought I would move home is because I didn't think there was an industry or a career for me here um, and how wrong I was. I wasn't to know that offshore wind was about to be this exciting new industry. So when I returned home four years ago, uh, I got a job at Wellington Shire Council and was the manager of their economic development department, a key point of contact for all the activity happening in the renewable energy space. And uh, I guess it's right place at the right time. Um, Something that I'm really passionate about is offshore wind and decided to go project side 12 months ago. So given Kate's background and our own experience with feeling like we just had to get out of here to create a life for ourselves, we wanted to know if she felt the same way having moved back after 22 years. Yeah, I think it's almost around the point of the, the fact we need to reframe success. My parents never even talked about me staying in sale as an adult and for a career, um, partly because they thought all the opportunities were in the city and the big smoke. And yes, university and things like that, of course, but it was never discussed about coming home. In retrospect, it's quite funny coming home now. I appreciate Gippsland so much more and it's a beautiful place to raise children and have a a great work-life balance. And I enjoy Melbourne more now too. I just go and have my quick fix. And um, after a few days, I'm like, get me out of here. I'm ready to go home. Because of Kate's vast experience in the renewable energy sector and the jobs that are coming into the region, we wanted to know how she would describe what a day in the life might look like for the next generation of workers. For the school-aged children of today, it's actually perfect timing. So our project will commence construction in 2028. So when I was at the Gippie Youth Summit on Wednesday, I was talking to kids that are sort of 15, 16 years of age, and I explained to them, you know, by the time they do the last few years of their study, at school, they'll then go on to university, TAFE, traineeship, scholarship, whatever it is. And when they come out, there's gonna be this whole new, exciting new industry. And, um, you know, offshore wind actually has this like technical mindset that you need to be a marine scientist or an engineer. But the reality is we need a whole range of a skill set. And so we're also an operating business. So we need HR and OHNS and the communications department and finance and payroll and all those sorts of things. So I think, you know, there's something certainly for everyone. Um, given that this episode is focused on youth, the, the youth, Stephanie, the youth, uh, I wanted to know from Kate what message she would want to leave. Given her position of power, I wanted to know what message she would leave for young people. Uh, I would just say that there's a heap of opportunity and um, to keep your eyes open because a lot of the projects are genuine in their need and they want to engage with those school students and sort of um, bring them on that journey and build that local capacity and capability. So I would just keep your ear to the ground. There's going to be lots of traineeships, scholarships, placements, work experience and things like that. We are genuine when we say that we want to employ local people. We've had a bunch of conversation around some of the really positive wins about the GNEC, but I also know that there was a carbon capture 
uh, talk that was a little bit controversial in the sense that there is disagreement about the effectiveness of carbon capture overall and maybe the, uh, I don't know, place of such technology in an event that's looking at new technology. So do you kind of want to fill us in on what happened at the event and why it was controversial in some ways? Sure. So there is a coal to hydrogen project in the Latrobe Valley that is going to be solely for Japanese use, just for a little bit of background. But locally, we're still going to be burdened with the coal ash pollution and the waste from this project. And we already have tons of coal ash pollution that is being stored in the Hazelwood mine. One of the questions that we need to ask is, like, what benefits is this carbon capture and storage project happening going to have for the Latrobe Valley community. So the basic premise is that these devices like somehow capture the carbon that's in the atmosphere and store it in a theoretically safe way. That's sort of the general idea that's being put forward, which sounds good, right? It sounds like that should work. Right. It sounds like that it should work. However, it, it, it doesn't. It's not that it's not that simple. And <laughs> we can go into that in a whole, I feel we like can. It's a whole we, episode. It about is a whole Sunday. episode. But the critique that I want to make is that we had the Carbon Net people there. and At the GNEC. At the GNEC. And our government has spent millions of dollars investigating this coal to hydrogen project that requires carbon capture and storage. These endeavours all over the world have not been that successful, yet we're sinking money into them. So a lot of people had some very valid concerns to bring up about carbon capture and storage, and a lot of questions were put into the Hoover app. However, What's so the Hoover, app, just the Hoover people... app is the conference app that was used across the GNEC, where people could ask questions of the speakers and also... It's like a social media app yeah, where you can kind of engage. A mi- yeah. mini, mini social media. Yeah. Um, the questions that were critical of the carbon capture and storage process were very much glossed over. Glossed over by the moderator? By the moderator and they were not answered. And the questions were put in there well ahead of time as well. So we spoke with a couple of people that we knew who were in that talk and were very unimpressed with the way that the whole conversation was handled when any kind of critique was brought up. The people that we spoke to that were there in the audience, uh, one question um, got through um, saying that there are many people that disagree that carbon capture and storage doesn't work. And so one of the spokespeople who was not the not the MC said that we are going to begin re-education processes oh my God. by um, <laughs> using the same example that we've been using to children about sucking milk up through a Tim Tam. Right. So they're going to get us to understand that it does work by sucking up milk through a Tim Tam because that works? Right. So anyway, so there was they were, were not taking the criticisms of carbon capture and storage seriously at all and address them in a very superficial way was the critique of what we heard back. Yeah, that they're very much talking about this as a new and emerging industry. And I don't think that an industry that is reliant on burning coal to create it is a renewable industry and it's not a new energy like it's not I don't think it doesn't it doesn't fit to me into the umbrella of things that should be yes. focused on and also it's going to be used as a band-aid for carbon producing fossil fuel giants well, that's my to understanding keep on producing too. the same bad things and just delay the consequence a little yes so I think like I remember that this was part of the organizing there was debate about the placement of this i can understand why they would want to have the conversation in an open forum in the sense that like that is happening and therefore there should be debate i guess it's a little disappointing that the criticisms weren't necessarily able to be addressed directly because that would have been ultimately the best thing for it but i'm with you so my understanding is like there is actually a place for this technology if we were using it as an interim measure to deal with some of the shit 
But that's not how it seems to be going down. It seems to be no. a, a sort of greenwashing effect again where they're Correct. like, well, we're just going to do this now instead. And so I'm not really quite sure like who that benefits or why or why the state government has kind of gone so far down that path. And again, we can look at that a whole another episode. But I guess like just to flag that like that did happen at this event. The yeah. organisers did choose to put it on, although in a smaller um, space. But I guess like ultimately I think the conversation would have been improved if more engagement had have come uh, around the crit- critiques. Right. And just specifically with the Latrobe Valley project in mind, because like I have been following this and I've read up on it, it is just not financially viable because it needs, it requires a whole new pipeline being built. And this has just like been a huge episode, where, but we're about to have a breath of fresh air because... Okay, so we have gotten through all of that and now we are going to find out not only the results of the youth... Ser- no, sorry, voluntary questionnaire, not survey, but we also are going to speak to this incredible young woman that we found, we found, we discovered at the community day. My gosh, what oh, an absolute yeah. boss. So like. Ellie is actually a year 12 school captain at a Catholic college in Sale and she actually wants to be an engineer and project manager and she's very specifically interested in... Wind Farms. Given that she's so uh, passionate about wanting to become like an engineer and working in that industry, we both really wanted to know, given that it's traditionally a male-dominated field, how she felt about stepping into an industry like that. Yeah, so I think when it used to be like, you know, like the physics math subject used to be like um, male-dominated, it's pretty much 50-50. I see so many um, really interested and dedicated and passionate like young women that we just like there's a lot less barriers I feel like people aren't having to compete against like male dominated courses anymore because there's so much help from universities scholarships to get young women in there and it's working like there's so much interest from young women that I don't see it as a barrier personally for myself I see it as an opportunity um, now which I think is really really exciting and so hopeful for my gender. When thinking about education and training options we know that many kids are forced to move to the city to pursue the things they want to do. So we asked Ali how much of a barrier that is to, for herself and her peers. So my course is only offered in the city uh, so I will be moving away but I think it, it gives a valuable experience but at the same time it's not for everyone so I think seeing courses come into the regions will be really valuable because the cost of living is really high so staying at home and being able to study close to home is really really important and I think that it would just be so timely and accessible to start bringing those courses to really close so I think that would it's really important I think to make it seem more accessible for young people and it's it shows like a dedication from the universities and educational providers that this shift is happening around us this is this isn't something that's happening in melbourne this is happening in gippsland and it's really important to have it down here as well all right so i feel like if you come across an actual high schooler who's willing to do an interview with you you've gotta ask is it still cool to hate on your hometown like it was when we were growing up so this is what ellie had to say i think uh, there's two different people so sort of people who uh small towns it's kind of harder to be yourself um but I think it's definitely improving. Um, a lot of people seeing uh, more opportunities for jobs in the region, um, but people do still want to leave because it's not perfect. I don't think it ever will be, but we're seeing that change begin. Um, so I think that's really exciting, but there's still a lot of people who want to move away. And I think it's a lot about yeah jobs, opportunities, and 
but there is a lot going on in the area like that's positive um so i think it's about making it visible because i don't think a lot of people understand like or see um a lot of the opportunities that are really close to us Okay, so now that we've heard from Ali, like, I've got to say, I was like, have you had media training? Because that was an incredible interview. And uh, seeing her speak on a panel of adults, like, she is just an absolute boss. So well done, Ali. Like, you're incredible. And I'm so inspired by your energy and that you want to be an engineer and that you're interested in renewables because... Um yeah. When yeah. you're the boss of like all the renewables, can you please remember us? Remember and us. Ha- and like maybe hire uh, us to do a podcast. Pay homage to the arts. <laughs> or like put some money in. I think Make we'll a, st- be... a statue of us in the foyer <laughs> of statue. the wind renewable please. energy factory or anything, whatever. Uh, anything for the arts. That'd be great. <laughs> so now that we've heard from that, um, Ali, it's time to hear the results of the survey. I mean, what are you calling it? The voluntary questionnaire, which for very much legal reasons, we definitely have to say. It was voluntary. It was a voluntary questionnaire. It is definitely not a Definitely survey. optional. So definitely optional. <laughs> All right. So it's time to reveal the results from this highly scientific study. I did one semester of data journalism, so I absolutely know what I am talking about. So gen- generally, the respondents of the survey, 87.55% were under the age of 24. So they were between the ages of 15 and 24. 96% live in Gippsland. Only 12% had a family member working in the energy industry at all, including fossil fuels or renewables. 90% either strongly agreed or agreed that wind farms were the suitable source of electricity for Gippsland. 93% either agreed or strongly agreed that the change to 100% renewable energy is urgently needed. So in terms of getting a grasp on how this generation feels about renewables and the energy transition, they are largely in agreement that, that it, it's a necessity. Basically, throughout the voluntary questionnaire at the Gippie Youth Summit, we were really interested to find out about how their sort of basic education about renewables was stacking up. And so we asked them a few questions that might indicate that they had more education or less education. So it's pretty good. Only 12.5% thought that fossil fuels were the best source of energy moving forward which is obviously incorrect. Lots of students felt like they didn't have to move away in order to get their education, with 68.8% either agreeing or strongly agreeing that they there was sufficient training and education opportunities in the area, which I think is a really big shift from when we were growing up. But again, many hadn't decided um, if they were going to live or move away, with 37.5% planning to stay, 18.8% planning to move away, and 43% unsure of where they were going to live, which again, I think makes sense if you're just at the end of high school. It's a very tumultuous time. In terms of what they wanted to do for a job when they leave school, 40.6% didn't want to work in the energy industry, 34.4% weren't sure, and 25% were considering uh, working in the industry. So I think that is sort of like the top headlines of the responses that we got. We collected a few different uh, attributes that we don't think that Gippsland has enough of, or so including arts and sports and youth activities and youth spaces and community services, social and affordable housing options and community events for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, for culturally and linguistically diverse people, for refugees and for migrants and for LGBTQIA plus SB folk, and 
we wanted everyone wanted more of everything, but what won out was the arts, performing arts, and music spaces. So sixty nine percent. Did of we our force people to say that? Because no. <laughs> No, we didn't. You, oh. in fact, told them not to get a career in the arts no, very it's true. clearly. It is very so, difficult. Yes, Josie was very clear in that I'm here and I'm a podcaster, but I don't, don't advise do you to do don't that. Do this. <laughs> um, we had some really fun conversations there. But 69% would like more of that. That was our highest ranking um, thing. I just wanted to, to really speak highly of the conscientiousness of the young people to want things for other people that may not have been in their demographic or maybe they were. Yeah. But social and affordable and public housing was the next highest option at 65.5%. Yeah. So, like, we we all see this problem. They certainly see this problem as well. And that that is something that would make people more livable. Thank you so much to everyone at the Gippie Youth Summit who spoke with us, who put a sticker in our book, who did something <laughs> with our little zines. If you want to see the zines, all, they'll be on our page as well. And thank you for everyone who did the voluntary questionnaire. And big shout out to organisers at the Gippie Youth Summit. Well done. We the hope you all fun. get jobs. <laughs> yes. All right. So I think uh, the final person that we spoke to and we caught her at the very last minute of the very last session that we were in attendance on, on the on the community day is Michelle Isles, who is the incredible media manager and powerhouse of communications behind the GNEC and at the Gippsland Climate Change Network. So we um, managed to catch a very, very quick interview with Michelle just at the very end. And we asked for her reflections around how she felt the conference had gone uh, up to that point. And this is what she said. I've heard people talk about the energy that this event brings and it's about human powered energy. You know, a lot of events that are in the in the cities where people talk about regions aren't as connected. But when people put their feet on the ground here on Gunaikurno country, um, they kind of they feel that energy and they have no choice but to look around and and connect and actually think about, you know, what it looks like together to do this. So that might seem quite high level but it's, there's an energy here that's needed to create better outcomes. And I think that's one of the things we've achieved. Given that we had uh, a little bit of Michelle's time, we also wanted to know if there was any particular ideas or actions from the conference that had sort of really excited her or, or sparked her interest. I think there's a huge opportunity and a need to listen to First Peoples and Gunai Kurnai. And I think that really came through. And, and for me, you know, I host a panel and I was involved deeply in conversations. I had, you know, a friend, Paul Patton, up on stage for the dinner. You know, and for me, it's just this moment in time where community are seen and they're heard, and we need to make sure that their outcomes and aspirations are front and centre. So I'm, I'm hopeful that came through for everyone else. I did hear lots of talk about it, but it definitely resonated stood out for me as something that's unique about this region. No else in the world is there the Gunai people and their history and culture and place. So we've reached near the end of our episode and I just once again want to say a really big thank you to everyone uh, on the GNEC committees, like working group committee and subcommittees who made us feel very welcome in the lead up to the conference and also during the conference. One of my major takeaways, like I, I have been describing my experience at the festival as oscillating between super hopeful and super despairful because the enormity of this is huge as I hope everyone's understanding 
like the enormity of the renewable energy transition. But I'm taking solace in the fact that there are so many brilliant people on this problem. There are so many bi- businesses and people working in industry that and education that just have, you know, such a strong and good focus. There's so many academics that are bringing uh, research-backed methodologies for industry to do better by community than they've ever done before. And no one's ever made like held industry to this much account, but also the despair that the money is, you know, we have to follow the money largely on this. So I just want to say I'm super hopeful about the future, but I think it's important to keep having these conversations and to make sure we see legitimate social license and legitimate community benefit sharing because um, communities deserve to benefit from whatever industry it is that they hold. I, yeah, I'm with you. I think we said at the start that this episode was themed around the duality of like right. the ultimate, um, again, privilege and possibilities and the hope that's there and I I always think about this working in the climate space like everybody's like oh can't we tell hopeful stories can't we look to the the bright side of things and like I I I get in so many ways why the temptation is to to do that and to focus on the positives and you know I'm a relatively try to be pragmatic person like I understand this is an imperfect situation we have to do things sometimes imperfectly if we're going to do them at all but at the same time the more I learn about the yeah what does Rhonda call it the the difficult the wicked the wicked problem the more I'm like oh the the compromises that it seems that we need to make in order for this to work at the speed like I just it's so hard not to feel frustrated by previous errors of not doing this sooner and even just the the slowness with which we seem to still be working on this and I I'm torn between my desire for fundamental good change and my desire to not die in climate catastrophe so I and I and I and I it's hard to reconcile those two things and I really I guess I don't I'm hearing two very distinct sides, the people who are just like heads down working on solutions for how to make enough energy quickly so that we can make this transition and the people who are like in the trenches working on the like living reality of people who are already facing climate catastrophe and I guess I don't see a lot of that in one place and I think the GNEC has an opportunity to do more maybe in that um, bringing the people who are in the trenches to the people who are in the boardrooms and, and, and closing that gap because we're all people and we are all on this fucking flaming ship together so yeah. why don't we just you know get it together yeah. <laughs> so like I'm with you like I feel I feel I think I feel climate grief and despair and I I'm not sure what to do with that when I also know that that's not helpful but I just right. it's there I think that's so important to be able to talk about and to feel that because how many conversations did we have we had in our whole like I don't know, since we started doing this work <laughs> yeah. about like how long do we keep playing this tiny violin I of know, hope yeah. and sometimes it feels so tiny but <laughs> I don't know what else to yeah. do and I think that's why like the hopeful messaging is so important and the solution focus is so super important but I just think that we really need to. I guess, as you said, to be pragmatic and also remember that we don't have to accept everything. Get as involved as you can and demand that the industry benefits the community because we have to. I think that's such a great point. Like, I think I'm often overwhelmed with the scale of the problem and my individual contribution seeming utterly meaningless. But... I think we're both examples of like we, well, I personally didn't know a lot about this when we started this podcast and now we find ourselves in these rooms with people and 
you know, one win I'll share is like, you know, we were able to have conversations with uh, an industrial group and sort of share that there is more complexity and nuance to this region than maybe they knew about. And they wrote us an email afterwards saying like, thank you, we did not know, we'll take this into consideration. Now I know that, you know, maybe they, to what scale, I don't know. But I think like us just being two people in those spaces, having our little say has fundamentally had a ripple out now, hopefully that will make some semblance of a difference. And I guess that does make all of this huge scale and difficult to process a little more meaningful so I just want to add to what you were saying like if you are in any space like just have it have a go have a say because even though it seems like insurmountable maybe we all feel like we don't know enough we kind of do your we experience kind of do. is enough yeah. and you're you're valid so we're all valid we're, we're all just so valid. goddamn valid so, yeah so please yeah. go out and do and say and like if you have questions make like, trouble <laughs> make trouble be loud make trouble we're because we're in trouble anyway so you may as well say something yeah so you may as well say something and that's what makes change happen and good change is possible and it is coming I can see we can feel um, it I can feel good change very much we have a diverse listener base and it was interesting hearing like lots of people saying like oh I've listened to this podcast and that it's a useful tool in some ways which is great but I think given that it's like it would not be nice to see that expanded out and right. have those conversations with a, a broad range. Um, so anyway, I think that's uh, that's brought us to the end of the uh, GNEC 2023. Spectacular 2023. We hope that we've answered at least some of your questions around what happened. If you have other questions, feel free to let us know on social media. Give us a follow. Give us a listen. Give us a like. Send Tell a friend. Email. Send us an email. Yeah. All the information is in the show notes and in the links below. And you can ask us questions because we'd love to know if we haven't answered something. We did learn a shitload more. We have a lot of interviews we had to cut. So there may be information we can send to you about everything. I want to say a huge, massive thank you to our guests, Bodie Darville, Bernadette O'Connor, Scott Douglas, Kate Foster, Ellie McGregor, Michelle Isles, and the whole team at the GNEC for being so generous with your time. You can find the resources in the show notes for this episode. The music for Coalface is by Anonymous420 and Loyalty Freak Music. The series is written, edited and produced by Josie Hess and Stephanie Sabrinskis. If you like what you heard, find us on Instagram at ColfacePod or send us an email to ColfacePodcast at gmail.com. Look out for the next episode of Coalface in four years when we get around to it. Ah! <laughs>